to the Small Business Buzz. I'm your host, attorney and entrepreneur, Kimberly Hanlon. Today, I'm talking about what you need to know and what you need to do if a customer files for bankruptcy. And we have employment law attorney, Ryan Kempmeyer, here to talk about the things business owners need to know about handling employment issues. And he'll give us the top tips that you can use to stay out of trouble. Welcome, we're glad you're here. Okay, let's get to it. If your business carries accounts receivables for any of your clients or any of your customers, at some point, you're going to have somebody who doesn't pay you. And eventually, it's possible that you'll even have somebody who files for bankruptcy. And when that happens, it's really important that you know how to handle that because mishandling that can really cost you a lot not just in what you're not going to get paid, but also in penalties for being a bankruptcy creditor and not handling that right. Okay, so here are the six steps that you need to take if you have a customer that files for bankruptcy. The first thing you need to do is to cut off all contact. And the reason for that is that as soon as somebody files for bankruptcy, there's this thing that happens by law called an automatic stay. The instant they file, an automatic stay comes into place and all collections efforts have to stop. And if you contact the debtor for collections purposes in violation of the automatic stay, there are really high penalties. Now, you might have learned about the bankruptcy because you got a notice in the mail as a creditor. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you hear about it through the grapevine. If you've heard about it through the grapevine, but you haven't gotten a notice in the mail, then the best thing you can do is to have your attorney look up the bankruptcy case on the PACER system, or you can do it yourself, although it's not super intuitive how to do it. But anyway, look up the bankruptcy case on the PACER system. That's the the federal electronic filing system and find out who their attorney is and call their attorney and ask if you're listed as a creditor. This is really important because if you're not listed as a creditor and you're intentionally not listed as a creditor, then after that automatic stay is lifted, you can resume collection activities and your debt isn't going to be discharged in the bankruptcy or potentially discharged. Okay, the second thing, is to do the math. You're going to want to discern about how much your client's assets are worth as opposed to what all they owe. If they don't have anything and they owe a boatload, then depending on if you're a secured creditor or an unsecured creditor, or if you're unsecured, if you're a priority creditor, it may not be worth it for you to even spend one more moment thinking about it. Just write the debt off and be on your merry way. However, if you are a secured creditor, or if there's some good reason why your debt shouldn't be discharged, like they weren't entirely honest with you when you were giving them credit, so that would be a type of fraud that would prevent that debt from being discharged. If there's something like that going on, then it might be worth it for you 
to follow through and see if you can get paid as much as you can in the bankruptcy process. Okay, so the next step is to really look at what kind of bankruptcy are we talking about? Are we talking about a business bankruptcy or a personal bankruptcy? In a business bankruptcy, one of the owners files for bankruptcy on behalf of the business, but it may or may not be them personally that's filing for bankruptcy as well. If it's a corporation or an LLC, then the debts of the company will be paid out of the assets of the company, unless there's some good reason to pierce the corporate veil and have the owners be personally liable for those debts. Under Chapter 7, Bankruptcy, the business will be completely liquidated and the business will no longer exist after the bankruptcy. The proceeds will be distributed to the creditors. Now, there's a certain order that distributions get made, though. Secured creditors get paid first. And what that means is that the creditor has some sort of security interest in whatever it is that they've given the credit against. This is common for things like equipment and fixtures and furniture and things of that nature. As you might have guessed, if something isn't a secured debt, then it's an unsecured debt. But even amongst unsecured debts, there are priority creditors. So the secured creditors get paid first. And then the unsecured priority creditors. And then the plain old unsecured creditors. If there's not enough to go around and you're in the camp of plain old unsecured creditors, then you might not get paid at all. Or if you do get paid, you might get paid literally pennies on the dollar. So the other kind of bankruptcies that you might see are either Chapter 13 or Chapter 11. And they're similar but different. In a Chapter 13, only an individual can file. So you'll see a Chapter 13 bankruptcy for a sole proprietorship, but not for a corporation or an LLC. There are also some debt limitations for a Chapter 13. And in a Chapter 13, the debtor has three to five years to pay off the debts. And what happens is the bankruptcy trustee figures out how much income is coming in. And unlike in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, where you're given a certain amount of property that you get to keep, but everything else gets sold, and that is all used to pay your creditors. In a Chapter 13, you actually get to keep your property. But the bankruptcy trustee looks at how much income you have coming in and what your expenses are, and then creates a plan for you to pay off the debts or most of the debts, within three to five years. And if it's a sole proprietorship, then, of course, the business gets to continue operating. Whatever doesn't get paid off in five years does get discharged. And there is still the priority scheme for secured creditors, priority unsecured creditors, and then plain old unsecured creditors. On the other hand, a Chapter 11 is available to anybody, individuals, but also corporations and LLCs, you might have heard of this as a Chapter 11 reorganization. And it happens with big companies, little companies. Like with the Chapter 13, it gives the opportunity to pay off the debts over time. With a Chapter 11, though, there are no debt limits and there's no time limits either. So really, everyone does get paid off. However, Chapter 11 bankruptcies are more complicated and more costly than a Chapter 13. However, if you're a corporation or an LLC and you want to continue to exist and operate, then Chapter 11 is the only option. Okay, 
So you'll want to know if your customer is filing for Chapter 7 or Chapter 13 or Chapter 11. If you know it's a Chapter 7, depending on the asset and debt ratio, you might not be getting paid anything. On a Chapter 13, you know you're likely going to get paid most of it. You won't get fees and interest, but at least you're going to get paid, or likely get mostly paid, over three to five years. On a Chapter 11, you know that you're going to get paid, you just don't know when. It could take a while. You should also know that sometimes people start out as one type of bankruptcy, and then things go really south, and then they convert it to a Chapter 7. And it just goes that way sometimes. Okay, the next thing to do, if you have ascertained that there's a likelihood that you could get paid, then you'll want to file a proof of claim in the bankruptcy case. And this is one of those things, there's a, a finite time for you to do that. And if you don't timely file that claim, it's barred, as in you can't ever ask to get paid on it again. Next, there's going to be this thing that's called a 341 meeting of creditors, and it'll happen at the federal courthouse. If you have something to say about your customer and their bankruptcy, that's the time for you to go and say it. The judge will be there, the bankruptcy trustee will be there, the creditor will be there with their attorney. If there's something that you want to bring up to the trustee, like, hey, I think that my debt shouldn't be discharged and here's why, that's the time to speak up. Or if you feel like you've been treated unfairly, or if you're just really curious to know kind of what the repayment plan is. Whether you go to the 341 meeting of creditors or not, though, if it's a chapter 13 or a chapter 11, you will get a copy of the repayment plan and you'll have an opportunity to either approve the plan or raise objections about it. The bankruptcy trustee is your friend in that their job is to look out for your interests and recover the most money for you that they can under the law. And if you have something to say about the debtor or the debtor situation or or whatever happened, they definitely want to hear from you. Okay, so there's no guarantee that you will never get stiffed by a client. I mean, unless your business is such that you just never give credit or have an accounts receivable balance, but most businesses do have some element of either performing services or giving goods and then getting paid after the fact. So here are a couple things that you can do to make it less likely that you'll be left with a large receivables balance to write off. Again, no guarantee, but it does help. One of the things that you can do is to file a UCC Form 1 with the Secretary of State. Okay, you probably are going what the heck is a UCC-1 form? The UCC is the Uniform Commercial Code, and we don't want to go into all of that. I mean, gosh, I had a whole class on the UCC code in law school, and my head about exploded, so we're definitely not going into that in a podcast. But what you need to know is that a UCC Form 1 creates a security interest in the personal property that is tied to the credit that you're giving. Okay, when I say personal property, I don't mean that like that somebody personally has. I mean personal property as opposed to real property or real estate. So anything that is not real estate is personal property. I know it's weird. It's just the way the law is. Okay, when you file a UCC Form 1, 
you are stating that you're providing financing for a certain property related to the business and that you're securing your interest in that property. So that makes it a secured debt instead of an unsecured debt. So that moves it up the priority chain significantly. And so if somebody files for Chapter 7 bankruptcy and there's not enough to go around, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to get something if you're a secured creditor as opposed to a plain old unsecured creditor at the very bottom of the barrel. And then the other thing that you can do is to do background and credit checks before you extend credit. And yes, there are limitations on what you can do as far as background and credit checks are concerned, but extending credit is one of the valid uses for doing those checks. If you have a client who's been paying you regularly and then their payment frequency falls off, that might be a good time for you to recheck as well. And it's okay for you to stop extending credit to people based on their payment history and also if concerning things show up in their credit report. Okay, so that's the quick and dirty about what you need to know if a customer files for bankruptcy. Like many, many areas of law, there's a lot of nuances, a lot of intricacies, and of course every case is different. But for the typical case, that should get you through. If you'd like to read my blog post about this, the link is on my show notes, or you can find the blog post on my website at khanlinlaw.com. That's K-H-A-N-L-O-N law.com. And while you're at it, sign up for my bi-weekly business newsletter. In each newsletter, I have articles that'll help you in running your business. And sometimes I have bonus materials for you to download for free, like small business legal guides, or recordings of webinars, or sometimes even model legal forms. Okay, up next is my interview with Ryan Kampmeyer. Life of an entrepreneur is a never-ending struggle to sharpen that competitive edge that will place your business ahead of the competition. Fortunately, the shape of the average workplace has changed. Finding that fine balance struck between cost efficiency and excellence is now easier than ever. We need help when we need help, but we don't need to be burdened with full-time staff. That's where astute business concierge can help you. Astute Business Concierge. More than just smart, astute. Visit us on the web at astutebusinessconcierge.com to see how we could help you. Okay, today we're here with employment lawyer, Ryan Kampmeyer. Thank you so much for being here, Ryan. You are welcome very much. So I thought today... We could tap you for your experience on employment issues um, and maybe also give some tips for business owners to help them stay out of trouble. Yes, for sure. Um, Plenty and plenty of dumb mistakes by business owners. I can't even begin to even... All the things that should be sued out don't get sued out and all the things just by the sake of them not being missing the coverage requirements of a law by like one technicality. Yeah. There's been a lot and a lot of small mistakes that can even, even just avoid even not even necessarily liability, but just having to deal with, you know, the investigation from the EEOC or the Minnesota department of human rights or whatever agency. Okay. So what would be, 
What would be the number one silly, stupid mistake that business owners make? Well, I think before for a second, actually, to start off, I think they really do explain it for the employment law. It's not really necessarily one mistake. It's more of a guiding principle that business owners should have, employers should have. And it's basically be a decent person and have some and understand nuance. That's really the two things that you really need. But don't you think most people think they are a decent person? True. Um, that's probably me being a little sarcastic. <laughs> um, uh, but when I get some of the bad stories that you hear are like, there's an alter. There's a conflict with an employee and an employer, and the employer gets in there and takes a person. Starts screaming along with them, or, or starts the fight, um, or escalates the fight. Um, I don't know things like some a lot of small employers like try to dock paychecks. Clearly, you know they're pretty unfairly. Um, and I think, and especially if you're in employment cases, especially, I mean. There's always a tug of the, the pull of the facts back and forth. It's juries are going to expect to see things like documentation, but they're also going to see the inherent fairness and unfairness, and everyone identifies with that. Everyone knows if if you look at the situation, you feel that you know you're going to be end up looking as the bad guy. There's a good chance you might be found out to be the bad guy, um, or. Employee, employees, even if something happens that's wrong, employees that like their employers don't sue their employers. So um, having good relationships, and I think that's also probably going to be good just, you know, on a productivity front, you know, and for your business. But, yeah. Um, so me being sarcastic, yeah, be a decent person, but be inher- fairness, I guess, is the, the inherent standard. Um, just because you can do something to someone doesn't mean you should. So, for example... Um, just because you can fire someone summarily, for no, you know, for no cause, doesn't mean you necessarily should. So um, I think that that people do have an idea that there's supposed to be some process before they get fired, which may or may not be true, depending on. It yeah, it depends. Um, people always say, "Well, this is an at-will state." Yeah, I think the way to look at it is it's an at-will state with a bunch of exceptions, and those exceptions being. Uh, if there's a collective bargaining agreement with a union, uh, an employment contract may have some terms spelled out, you know, versus how, uh, how, what the process or what qualifies, you know, for them to be fired, um, for usually for good cause. They might define good cause, might not. Um, and then the various discrimination and retaliation laws, like Minnesota Department of Human, uh, the Minnesota Human Rights Act, you know, no, no discriminating on the basis of race, gender, um, familial status, um, sexual orientation, many other things as well. And then almost every employment uh, statute that has where an employee has a, a right is always going to have a, a retaliation provision, uh, anti-retaliation provision. So if someone complains to OSHA, then you fire them for complaining to OSHA. You know, That's there's a problem. Yeah, there's an anti-retaliation provision there. Um, so, Yeah. So there's always going to be an issue, but... Well, and then, of course, if a business has made policies, yeah, they have to follow those policies. You can't yeah. pick and choose as a business owner which ones you follow in what circumstance. It's always good to have uniform policies, and I think there's a caveat to that. So if you... When you're, di- when you're disciplining employees, because discipline and discharge is a huge thing, and that's going back to that example, you know, I've seen this before, employees, you know, it's usually a... 
a business owner who started the business usually. Um, it's usually they end up getting that personal scuffle with the employee instead of just dealing with it and moving on. Um, they have employee policies, but the one thing is to to discipline someone the same way every time, every employee the same way. Um, there's going to be there's some exceptions to that. So if all the say say if you have a you own a shop, I don't know, you fix school buses, a mechanic, you know, or something like that. Um, you probably have more male employees. Um, not always. I mean, it's getting um, nowadays is getting more and more uh, gender equity, but traditionally it's been a more male-dominated field, and so there's a good chance that for doing the same thing, you might not even intentionally, but just have that inherent bias, you know, just from being, you know, retreat. You know, say if people are swearing in the in the workspace, the men do it on the floor. Oh, that's just men being men. It's on the floor. I don't know. Another a female mechanic does it, and all of a sudden, you know, she gets a, a verbal warning instead, or uh, a written a write up, or whatever it is. So, you kind of want to make sure you want to be uniform with that, because um, that that you can't prove all discrimination, but just that appearance of impropriety does look bad. Um, and I think there's some when it comes to disability stuff, um, disability related issues. You can't necessarily have uniform policies because, for example, one that I've seen was, or I just, I just saw actually, was someone had a disability by the facts that I've seen. It was a disability. She hasn't reported it yet, but they had, she kept going over the leave time that she was allowed to have, but she'd come back, she'd come in the doctor's note. And the employer wanted to, had a leave policy saying you can only miss this much time. Should he run through unpaid and sick time? It was this under the Americans with Disability Act. Uh, I was unsure, but it would be the same. It would be the same under the Americans with Disability Act, or the same with. Um, oh, under the state. Uh, Act. Under the state law too, because they track the state laws and federal laws track each other. The state laws are a little more comprehensive, versus like things like familial status, which is protected. It was a protected, protected status benefits. Um, if you're receiving public benefits, you cannot be discriminated on the basis of that. Or public assistance, I should say. Sexual orientation, which is not covered federally. Things like that. Uh, so, But they generally track, though. They're generally the same. Generally, the rulings in, in our state laws are more generous than uh, the federal law. Generally. But for going back to that example, the ADA, Minnesota, uh, Minnesota Human Rights Act disability issue, was that they had a uniform policy that said, if you go over this amount of time, you cannot have this much time. But with the ADA and then Minnesota Human Rights Act, under, the, under their disability provision as well, you have to give them a reasonable accommodation. And at that point, when the employer kind of found out about this, they should have they should have inquired to see, do you need an accommodation? And maybe leave time could be part of that reasonable accommodation. And on top of she might be entitled to the FMLA. I'm not sure with this business if they met the threshold for coverage because I believe. And that's the the Family Medical Leave Act. Family Medical Leave Act, correct, where you get 12 weeks of uh, an employee who works a certain amount of time. They have to work there a certain amount of time. And the employer to be covered under that has to have fifty, at least 50 employees um, to meet that threshold. And they get 12 weeks time to take care of themselves for serious illnesses or family members or also and that can be calculated different ways but yeah so you get 12 weeks a year so 
but it'd be unpaid. It doesn't have to be paid. And employers, they don't have to, your employees don't have to request it. It is your job to designate that leave. So if, you, if your employee says, well, I don't want to take FMLA, tough. It's your job to designate it. So, And you can make them take their vacation time to do it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people think that employees request. I've had employees, you know, people are employees. My boss made me take my FMLA time. Like, yeah, that's what they do. That's the job. You, the, it's the boss's job to designate. So Ooh. FMLA, in a way, reserves somebody's mm. job yes. if they have to go and take care of family members. Yep, or themselves. Too. Or themselves. And so, and going back to that disability issue. Maybe a reasonable accommodation would be FMLA. You know, I could take that. But under the ADA, so if you give them, if the employer gives them their FMLA, they take 12 weeks. The ADA might, you know, require as a reasonable accommodation would be require that maybe more time might be added. Because when the employer inquires, inquires about the reasonable accommodation, it begins something called the interactive process. It should go back and forth. So your employer, so the employee might say, I need this chair because my I have these back problems. Uh, this chair costs a thousand dollars. It has speakers up by my head. <laughs> um, it vibrates and massages my back. Um, just because they demand it doesn't mean they're going to get that. But you can get them. You probably, you're probably going to have to get them a chair. You just don't need to get them that chair as long as it works. So you can get them the hundred and fifty dollar chair or something like that. That'll be that just has fun. the back support. Yeah, it has the back support. You don't need you, just because they request it. It's a, it's a reasonable accommodation. Um, that's so. That's you got to inter- You got to begin that interactive process, and then make sure you keep those files, those medical inquiries. Those got to be set because there are all these laws have reporting requirements and recording requirements. Keep them in a separate from their personnel file. So, how does that work too? So, for a business owner, it's kind of like I think business owners are. They don't want to come out and ask straight up, "Hey, do you have this medical condition yes. or, or something like that?" But then. They're not really responsible for making reasonable accommodations until somebody actually has some medically proven disability. It, it, it is an issue, yeah. It is an issue um, because I think in that situation I talked about, you get missing time, missing time. I think it was quite obvious that they needed to make the inquiry. But you wouldn't just go, um, you wouldn't see an employee and just be like, hey, do you need an accommodation? Because it does involve some things. Like, because uh, re- requiring information and involves, you know, that might involve all of a sudden there's another one, law, federal law. I'm trying to remember when they passed it. I can't remember if they passed it when, uh, in the late 90s when Bill Clinton was still president or when George W. Bush was president. But it was the, it's GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And that's, if you kind of remember, if you kind of look back at that time, I was, um, remember when genetics was coming in and everyone thought they were going to be making Superman with, you know, mice heads and things like that. And, People are like, oh it my said god! They made a sheep, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so people didn't know what genetics were, and people, you know, didn't know. So they pat and a lot of employers, I think, um, were talking about keeping their healthcare prices down because that's been, you know, an issue been going on currently, been going on since, you know, at least the, the '90s. Would we're talking about screening their employees for diseases, and you know, if you had like the gene for I don't know a certain type of cancer, you're you're um, your healthcare prices would be higher than your other employees, and that's why they have that law in there. So there is some issue about going in and, inqu- and inquiring about that. But if you're kind of put on notice to inquire, like 
missing a lot of time, you know, or they're just not getting the work done. And so when you go to give them a review or give them a warning, it's like ask them if they're having any sort of problems. Why, what's keeping them from getting this work done? Why, why are they now not as productive? And then if they, you know, need to inquire if they need an accommodation. But it is a hairy area, though. It is troublesome in inquiring about whether there's a disability, but if you're kind of put on notice about that disability, then a potential disability, then you should probably should make the inquiry. Sometimes employees will refuse accommodations. That's happened. I've heard of that before because a lot of people don't want to admit, you know, that they need extra help. But, and that, I mean, if they're refusing accommodation, make sure you document that they refuse, you know, they're refusing this accommodation because, yeah, that they come back against you. They say, well, you know, when, when you fire them, all of a sudden they go talk to a lawyer or just, or maybe they just go talk to, you know, their like, next door neighbor. Yeah. Or say, say, yeah, you don't know how the termination might go down in the future. In the future, you might, it might involve some bad feelings. All of a sudden they're going to try to use everything they got against you and lash out. I've seen people come to me like that, um, with no cause of action and just want to lash out at everyone involved. But it occurs to me that having employees really you should just document everything. You should document. And, yeah, and I think that brings me into another field. Um, well, speaking of, yeah, if if you could, if an employer under the ADA and the, and the State Act, if they offer, you know, if they act in good faith, meaning you know, honesty and you know, and all that, offer an accommodation and has turned down, they are kind of a, make it's, it makes them immune from liability further on, you know. Right. Basically, on, people have waived. Their- yeah, they've waived. Yeah, essentially, they've waived that. Um, and doc and in documenting things. I know a lot of people don't know this, but okay, so you should always be documenting things. Besides, if you have an investigation, because it's going to the notes are going to come up in litigation, I would just say try not to write anything down for the investigation because you don't want that coming back. Also, have your lawyer do it. Right, because it's lawyer. privileged, right? Yeah, it'll be it'll be privileged, and all of a sudden, so if you had me come in and do your investigation or another employment lawyer, my notes, you know, my. The information I gather is going to be privileged because it's my work product. So it's not going to show up, you know, it's not going to be in discovery, you know, so my impressions. So I, and that's kind of what I do. I mean, I do employ, I do a mix of employee, employer. You know, I like to do, you know, doing an H, being a small business HR department, essentially. So doing those investigations, it makes it all privileged. And that's a, and Kimberly, you're an attorney as well. You know, that's a big deal. That's a. If you get to litigation, I mean, really, your case is either made or Made or not made based yeah. on discovery, really, yeah. is what and, it comes down to. Yeah. And if you're an HR person, if you have an HR department or if it's just, you know, the owner of the business, cause depending on how big or small the business is, you know, the, those notes are going to come out in discovery when they make, when the opposing party makes requests, you know, for, you know, discovery and all of a sudden they're going to see, oh, so this is what he was thinking was going on. Okay. This are, these are his thoughts. Okay. So they might, you know, admit liability or, you know, or, the extent or if liability is not no longer the issue, it's the issue of damages, you know. It could be the issue of, it could be the difference between regular damages and punitive damages. Or it could be the finding, because these laws, a lot of them, eight, you know, discrimination laws, Title VII, the federal laws, or, you know, uh, the state laws, Minnesota Human Rights Act, all go through the agencies. Minnesota Department of Human Rights, the employee would file from, because they got to do this first, or the EEOC, Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, that could be the difference between a finding of probable cause, if probable cause they can go forward. If not, they can't go, well, they can go forward without probable cause, but who's going to take that case? <laughs> um, so that's a, that's a big deal, I and mean, that saves a lot of time and money. In a lot of these cases, it's my understanding that they have 
caps on damages, but not necessarily if there's punitives. Yeah, there's caps depending on the size of the business. That's usually how it works, the size of the, the enterprise. So if you are suing Target for – and I can't remember them off the top of my head right now, but um, if you're suing Target, for example, it's going to be much you – know, for the exact same things you're suing – uh, a business owner who owns maybe two or three gas stations or something like that, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a much different, different damages cap for sure. But still, the damages for the gas station owner is still going to be enough to yeah. seriously impact. Target Target's going to survive. Target's going to survive. <laughs> the um, gas station, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, the gas station, maybe not. I mean, Walmart was sued. They've been sued many times uh, for employment reasons. Oh, I can't remember which one. They, 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 they've been, I believe they had a wage and hours suit that they had to face, and they weren't giving break time. It was in the state of Minnesota a number of years back, but that was, you know, a massive class action. They, they have clearly survived that. Uh, small business owner, probably not so much. Yeah, so it's, I would say, even more important yeah. that the small business be on top of the technicalities of the law, which is, I mean, in some ways, it's more onerous for the small business owner because they don't have the HR department that Walmart has. Well, I, th- I think the thing is, that it goes back to, is people don't sue people they like. So if you treat your employees well, you're probably going to get better pro- productivity out of them, but they're probably not going to sue you either. So if you treat them fairly and they, and they like you, even if you have to fire them, I mean, I've had many people come in, but they don't want to sue their employers. It's like, well, why did you come, you know? They're, they're reluctant to, you know, well, I like Steve because, you know, he owns the business and he's always been nice to me. I'm like, well, he hasn't paid you overtime in, you know, two years. That's a problem. Um, so, if yeah, that's that's a good way to, even if you miss these technicalities, it's a good way. People don't sue people they like. Have you found that uh, mediation is a good venue for these sort of cases? Um, I know if you, like, for a discrimination claim... For, I mean, you can always do mediation. I know if the EEOC has a, as a and, and Minnesota Department of Human Rights has a process within the chart when after the after the employee makes the charge um, before they find they do have a, a process of alternative dispute resolution. I mean, I guess you could always do that, but I mean, employment cases. Um, I like I said, I haven't really done a lot of mediation. Um, if you if you do an employment contract beforehand. You're probably not going to want to do this for every single little employee. I mean, but I mean, especially like, but you can always you know, put an arbitration clause in there or something like that, a mandating arbitration. Um, and one good thing I think is that with e with, with the, the discrimination laws, you goes to the EEOC and the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, Title Seven Minnesota Human Rights Act. You can you can have someone waive their claims, even you know on a severance package. You know, um, so if you're terminating someone. Give them, you know, have them sign, you know, a severance, a termination agreement, have them waive their claims. But the one thing about that is if they, if they, they can still go report, they still have the right to go report to the EEOC or the Minnesota Department of Human Rights. So a new thing which you can put in those severance agreements has been, and I don't know how long this is going to stand because it hasn't been tested yet, would be it would forgo their right to claim any damages. So the EEOC would be prosecuting this claim and say they say the EEOC won against the employer and damages were awarded, they would have to forego that right. So that would take away their incentive to go after the employer. But I don't know how long that would last. 
I don't think if, if it gets used too often by employers, I think it's something that courts will do away with just because it so undercuts the public policy of the laws. That makes sense. You talked about employment contracts and yes. um, using possibly an arbitration clause. I like to do that when um, when my clients are on board with that because it it can be like one more layer of having the dispute handled without it having to be filed yeah. in, in the public record. And I, I think it's important for businesses to keep as clean a legal record as possible. Yeah. Yeah, because if you're a plaintiff's attorney, the first thing, if someone, come, if someone comes in with an, you know, an employment claim and you're, and you're judging the case, you're going to look at the litigation history and see, <laughs> are they vulnerable, you know, are, have they been, you know, sued for this over and over again? This has been a pattern. So that can always help in that aspect in, in deciding whether, you know, because these employment cases are taken on contingency fees. So the employment lawyers are, the plaintiff's lawyers are sitting there looking for, they don't want to risk their money on a bad case. So, I mean, that's one way to, Kind of, you know, well, they've never been sued before. Okay, so. So, yeah, they've never been sued before an issue. It makes them look less vulnerable versus if they've been sued for discrimination a million times or wage and hour issues a million times. But, yeah, so anyway, yeah, going back to non-competes and, and arbitration clauses. One thing about arbitration, though, is that one it could be a downside for the employer because the, the employers will be paying the cost of the arbitration. It might be more expensive for them. That you can always use that, but make sure your employment contracts are valid to begin with. I've seen such an abuse of employment contracts. Um, so much overreaching. I've seen that. Overreaching, too. yes, and that. Oh God, yeah, so much overreaching. Um, had someone this story. Someone approached me. They did. They designed jewelry, or they didn't design. They were kind of yeah. They designed jewelry, and they worked a lot of crystals. And the business uh, made crystals. And this employment contract. She worked there for. Six months or something like that. I'm not sure if there was it was valid because I'm not sure because she signed it. They, she signed it after employment, and I'm not sure what they gave her in exchange was valid consideration. Oh. Meaning they gave her bargain for exchange. Meaning they gave her something because you signed this contract. We gave you X amount of money or whatever it was. Yeah, oftentimes it's if you sign this agreement, we'll give you the job, and that's yeah. a consideration. But if yeah. you've already started the job, then. There needs to be something else. Yeah, and it's going to be state specific. So some some states are further employment. They've, they've taken the, the stance that because it's an at will employment, they could fire you tomorrow if you don't sign. Further employment would act as that consideration. Minnesota is not the it was not the case for that. So 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 and if you have an arbitration clause in a contract, an employment contract, and you find out it's not valid. You're not gonna you're not gonna, you're not going to be stuck in arbitration. They're going to go to court because arbitration clause isn't binding so if you didn't have a valid so you may still make sure it's valid if it's not a valid contract the arbitration clause will not apply right but um so going back so going back to that story she worked with crystals and and they said about a year in the minnesota years worth of max you can do um but of course it's got to be reasonable by time but about the time and the geographic restrictions so that means um can't be too long in time, and it can't be covered too great of an area. So, like, and this one said she could not work, I believe, anywhere. Well, this one said anywhere where we sell product or market our, our product, which that it's is everywhere, what, maybe. <laughs> added, that was almost the entire state. But then, before she had gotten fired, this company was bought by Swarovski Crystal. 
Which uh, means the whole world. Which means the whole world. Yes, exactly. And and then the term, and then the language of the, the language of the contract said something along the lines. I don't remember word for word. Said something along the lines of personal accessory jewelry or something like that. But she had gotten a job. So in other words, she needs to get if. If that one were to be enforced, she would have to go and get an entirely different yes. line of work. Exactly. Exactly. Well, at least for the year or something. Well, so, but she got a job, though, offered a job doing the same thing, but for dog collars. And so I advised her. I mean, the, the contract might have been valid to begin with. I advised her that, yeah, this isn't the same, the same feel. I, that's why I, I took a position of that. But also that it was getting close. It was like nine months. Like she just like went along with this. And I was just like, but so it's been about nine months. I'm like, just go ahead. They're not going to go. I mean, they're just not going to go after you for nine months. And you've had no job in nine months. None. Um, and so, I mean, the worst off the employee is like, say if they get, so it, for, so the worst off the employee is the, the more likely the court is to find, to, because the court, will, instead of just throwing out the contract, they'll do it called blue penciling. They'll alter the terms of the contract to, to the extent it can be enforceable, or they, they judge it to be enforceable. So if someone's, you know, is reduced to living on welfare and public assistance, they're probably going to let them go work or throughout the whole thing. If someone, you know, um, let's say they are a general software engineer, they might not be able to go work as a software engineer for the same industry. So if they were a software engineer for Google, well, uh, Google, let's say, um, they might not be able to go work for Yahoo, but they could probably go work for, well, Google has so many pan- fingers and so many pies, but they could go work as a software engineer for Boeing. A hearing aid company. Yeah, or yeah, or Boeing or something like that, you know, doing software for their planes. So that's a little bit different than saying, it's a little bit different than saying, I don't know, the only skill that they have. Like I think a while back, Jimmy Johns did this a while back. They tried having their... Those people in the store that make sandwiches had non-competes. Yeah, those were totally invalid. There's no way those would pass. At least in Minnesota, there's no way those would pass muster. Because there's nothing special proprietary that needs to be protected there. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, non-competes in Minnesota must be reasonable in geographic scope and time. Geographic scope and time. But they're also, they're also disfavored because not only are you robbing the employee of, you know, taking the employee's way to work, you're also taking another business owner's opportunity to hire that employee, and that's kind of the analysis they use. But you also can't. You also you have to use it to project a legitimate business interest, and so that's where that comes in. And just trying to keep your employees from leaving is not a legitimate business interest. So things like I don't know if you have salespeople access. You know if they had access to sales list. You know because well, sales is a field quite commonly has them. And I think of non solicitation. Yeah. As being. Way more favored than non-compete. Yeah, non-solicitation I mean, being, hey, don't poach our clients. Exactly, that would be much that that almost be a better solution. Um, I think when doing legal work, you kind of want to use the, the least amount of machinery as possible that you really need to use. So, yeah, a non-compete you might not even need that at least for a salesperson. So, yeah, access to uh, access to customer list. If you train them, that also plays a factor. If they weren't trained before, you know, or if they were trained before, you know. Also, to you know, the customer has seen their face. They've associated them with your company. When they come in, oh, hey, that's Bob. He works for A1 Manufacturing, and, you know, so I'll buy from him. There's a certain amount of time to protect that goodwill in your business, essentially. And that's generally going to be about a year. But it's a, 
it's a fact. It's an it's it's an analysis that is very fact intensive. So it's going to be very dependent on how long, where, what type of business. Like I said, is it the same industry? Because if you're a salesperson that sells hearing aids, and you go work and sell medic, or you go, you go work and sell diesel engines, then non compete's not going to be valid because there's no no reason. So apples to oranges. Yeah, apples to oranges. Yeah, so it's not. So what would you say are the top tips that business owners should know to stay out of trouble? Well, be fair, document, I think, because like I said, employees, that like people that like their employers, don't sue their employers. Don't play around with wages in any way. Don't make deductions or anything like that. Don't make penalties. If someone works unauthorized hours, for example, like say if you set a rule down that says they can only work 40 hours and they've worked 42, pay them that time and a half and discipline them some other way. And don't don't try to take don't try to take deductions other paycheck and don't try to penalize them for losses. That's gonna be a, that's a huge issue. Um, be fair. Make sure you're following your make sure you're following your discipline, your procedures, the same way every time for the same thing. Also strict across the board, just inflexible policies like there's only this amount of leave period. You know you can only have two weeks leave a year total time period. That's enough anymore. You get fired. Going back to that disability issue, you see how that comes into play. Yeah. So sometimes you got to be able to. So it's it's kind of a back and forth between I because I just said do the same thing every time, but then at the same time I just said, well, you gotta. Well, isn't shave. that isn't that what we do as lawyers? That's what you say. Oh, yeah. it's this rule except. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's always it's it, it going back to law school. The answer is always it depends. Yeah. So um, be fair. When people are, I, think, I like to say when people are terminated as well, just terminate, just fire them, terminate them, lay them off, whatever. With grace and dignity. Grace and dignity, but when, give them a reason, tell them the reason why, you know, I mean, say, you say, you know, tell what the reason that you told them, don't get into a screaming match with them later or someone calls you, or not, not necessarily a screaming match, but like, yeah, well, we just fired you because we didn't like you anyway or something like that. You know, don't get into that stuff because I mean, that, that's there, you know. If it's the only person with a disability, the only woman, the only man, the only... The only it, whatever. Yeah, it's the a only problem. whatever. It might be a problem. Or, you know, if they've just, you know... And it might look bad if, if, if they just made an OSHA complaint um, or something like that. So if they've asserted their rights in any way. Yeah, so... And I think, like I said, document stuff. Make sure make sure your reporting is good. Make sure you keep, you know... Make sure you're, you have your performance reviews. Progressive discipline. And make sure you train your staff too. I mean, you may know it, but make sure you're training your managers too. There's a lot of bad, there's a lot of you know bad actor managers out there. Um, there's a lot of people that have bad personalities, you know, that kind of seem to get their way to the top of things, you know, because that's all you know. And they from above they're, they're pleasing you, but from below they're being you know they're terrorizing their employees or bullying their employees. So make sure you have good you know good people and make sure you're training them. Also, I think don't be don't be don't be so afraid to make any move whatsoever. Where it's like, oh, there's all these laws, I can't do anything. If I, you know, always contact you know your attorney or an employment attorney, and they'll give you some advice if you if you really need it. But don't be so afraid of this. Like any little thing is like, I can't make a move. You can fire a woman. You can fire someone with a disability. It's entirely possible and it's quite easy. Um, <laughs> it's just you know, you just so, need to be smart about yeah, how you just about doing it. Yeah, just don't, you know, you just don't need to, it's, it's not a burden that people make it out in their mind to be. When they're not from, people aren't familiar with things. 
they get anxiety about it, it builds up in their mind, all of a sudden they just feel like I can't do anything. So I think I think that goes the same thing with the law. So I've certainly seen that when people don't know what to do, they don't do anything. Yeah, they don't do anything. And I think if you and if you're really holding on to people because because I mean that that should be fired if they're causing a problem in your workplace, your your business. They gotta then, go. They gotta go. Yeah. Um, and I, someone asked me a question. I talked to another. I gave another attorney this advice. Another business attorney asked me. He had an, an, a business employee. An employer had an employee, a manager, that wanted to carry his gun. I mean, he has concealed carry permit, but he wanted to do it. He was he was doing it at work. Um, and he was like, "Well, can you just tell him to stop? There's got to be something, you know." He was so worried about, you know, whether, God, there's probably something that's protecting him that lets him carry. Well, this is a private party. This is, you know, the, the employer, you know. So you can tell, you can have your, your manager, I mean, carrying, you know, open carry, you know, or not open carry, concealing carry is, is, is gone at work. I mean, that could be liability issues if he, if he ever uses it. I mean, even if he uses it in self-defense, he may shoot at a, you know, a robber or something like that. But if he misses one shot and hits someone innocent, I mean, that's going to come back on the business owner. So, there, I mean, there's nothing protecting him. But, I mean, just as long as he's not going and saying he can't carry a gun ever. But you can limit your employees what they can do at work for the most part. Well, if small business owners want to reach out to you and have advice from you or have you be their their sort of informal HR department, how can they reach you? Well, they can reach me uh, by... Calling me uh, or my email is rcampmeyer at campmeyerlaw.com. My website is www.campmeyerlaw.com. You spell that K-A-M-P-M-E-Y-E-R. So it basically spells like a sound except with a K. Um, so and I'll yeah. put I'll put links on the show notes as well. Yeah, and I do. I would like to add one thing coming up is that the new medical marijuana law is coming to effect this January or this July, I should say. There is a provision in there that employers cannot discriminate against people for participating in the program. So that means with drug tests, like they explicitly says in the law that you are protected from, you know, they are protected from drug tests as long as they show proof that they're involved in the law. So if you're testing for marijuana um, in your drug tests, then you cannot fire that employee. But you, they, obviously they cannot be under the influence at work, though, or use at work. So they can't be... You know, vaporizing a little pen or eating their little edibles at work, though. So no pot brownies at work. No pot brownies at work. No, <laughs> but so I just just get you that just just to see that 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 will be coming up. That might be an interesting podcast episode. Yeah, well, there's a case in Colorado now, Coates versus Dish Network. They fired Dish Network fired him for having a uh, he was like a technician or an IT support person or something like that. He's a quadriplegic. He was using marijuana, taking. Well, they have recreational there, but he was using the medical program. And his drug test came back, obviously, positive for marijuana. And the district court said that they couldn't fire him under a, product, under a statute called the Lawful Consumable Product Statute, which we have here. And the Lawful Consumable Product Statute is you can't fire employees for using product lawful consumable products as long as they're not at work. Um, the exceptions being... Um, like, if you look, like if, say, if you worked for Ford and your employees were driving a Chevy, that's would be a conflict of interest, or sometimes certain some certain safety provisions. But you can't like like you can't you can't fire an employee just for drinking alcohol off the, off the job right. specifically named. Um, and so in the, in the back and forth in their statute, which is going to be the same as ours, is lawful consumable product because marijuana is currently 
illegal federally. So what's lawful mean? Is that it's legal in the state? And the, appellate, the district court said, you know, gave Coates the victory saying, you know, zero drug, can't have a zero tolerance drug policy because, you know, it's a lawful consumer product. Uh, the Court of Appeals reversed, and now it's before the Colorado Supreme Court. So that could be something that could happen here in the future if we ever, um, with our medical program, especially if it ever expands or if there's ever a full legalization here. So, All right. So we'll have to keep yeah. our finger on that pulse. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here, Ryan. Yep. Anytime. All right. Well, we'll have you back soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. next week for the small business buzz when i talk about what you need to know if you think bankruptcy might be an option for your business and why it might be a strategic move if it is we'll also visit with career design coach kelly lewis about the ways that entrepreneurs can use scientific tools to find the optimum fit for what they do and how they do it for maximum success and satisfaction you can find links and other useful information on our show notes at the smallbusinessbuzz.com and be sure to follow us on iTunes or Stitcher. If you're liking what you're hearing, please give us a good rating and maybe even leave a review. Of course, a lawyer would have a disclaimer, and here is mine. Any information provided on the show is for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal advice. The show theme music is Pioneers by Jason Shaw, released under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.